Good morning, church. I feel like I often feel on Sunday mornings. I get here, no matter kind of what's been going on this week, and I'm reminded over and over again uh, why God saves people, and then he saves them into a family of believers. It is such a gift to be part of this church. I love you, church, and it's such a privilege to preach the word of God week in and week out. And i just so thankful for the gifts of the body. I feel like, get here, go to the prayer meeting. I'm already just so blessed by the saints, and it just continues from there through the nitty-gritty of the day and the nitty-gritty of our life together. So I'm just overflowing with gratitude for mothers and for the fellowship of the saints. So can I overflow in gratitude and prayer and for desperate help uh, during this time for God to do what only he can do? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you, and I'm sure many join me in hearty thanksgiving for mothers and for um, the gift they are and the influence that they have. And Lord, we overflow with gratitude that you have not just rescued us from sin on our hellbound race, but Lord, you have brought us into a family. So at the end of the day, it's not as important what mothers and fathers we have had or what upbringing we have, but we have a full-fledged family of faith that you use to shape us and grow us and to conform us into the image of your dear son. Thank you for the saints, Lord. Thank you for when the body is functioning well, how it builds itself up in love. And Lord, I do pray that you would use this word preached now to grow and heighten and sharpen our sense of what it looks like to love our neighbor well by guarding our neighbor's reputations. Get glory in this time, Lord. Be our teacher. We want you to speak through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the writer of the Proverbs, this Proverbs 18.21 captures well something so important for uh, our understanding of the ninth commandment this morning. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, an apostle of our Lord, understood this deeply when he was speaking about the power of the tongue in James chapter 3 when he says this, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body as well. He uses two analogies. He says, if you put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Then he says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is like a small, it's like a rudder, right? Is for the ship. It guides the whole vessel. And it says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, setting on fire, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people made in his likeness. Then the text says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. These things ought not to be so. We looked at the Eighth Commandment last week. Pastor Daniel preached that we shall not steal. If the Eighth Commandment was designed, in a sense, to grant us the security that we need so we're not living every day like wondering if something we worked hard for is just going to leave and flee and grow legs and walk away, the Ninth Commandment is meant to give a similar type of security, but it has everything to do with our reputations, our names. All right? So the Eighth Commandment protects our private property. The Ninth Commandment protects the most valuable thing that we can really have, our own reputations, our names. So you could say, in a sense, the Ninth Commandment is teaching us all about how to steward our neighbor's name how to steward our neighbor's name and reputation. Now, the outline I have for us this morning is simple, and I'm actually not sure how many points I'm going to have, so I'm just going to keep it general. Uh, some ways that you wouldn't want your name to be treated. I'm going to start. That first section is some ways you wouldn't want your name to be treated, or the way I thought to title it is uh, some ways to make the devil happy. And then I want to close at the end by talking about um, some ways that you would want your name to be treated. So let's start with five ways you wouldn't want your name to be treated, or you could also say five ways to make the devil happy. Number one, you wouldn't want your neighbor to give false testimony about you. It's amazing to me that when you're in a conversation, you know, and you're talking about something, all of a sudden, if someone enter, uh, injects into the conversation, um, would you like someone to do that to you? Isn't it incredible how much moral clarity comes in a moment like that? It's incredible, right? Because all of God's commands can be boiled down to this, love God and love your neighbor, right? Or the golden rule, treat others the way you'd want to be treated. And so really in a lot of ways, we're reading this command through the lens that Jesus gave us when he said all the commands are boiled down to this. Love God, love your neighbor. So what would it look like to love your neighbor? I'm just stating it negatively here saying, well, here's the first thing we know. We wouldn't want, when it comes to the ninth commandment, shouldn't bear false witness, we, you, wouldn't want your neighbor to give false testimony about you. Now, this command, like other ones, can be seen through like a narrow lens and a broader lens, right? So there usually is a very narrow focus, but then you realize it applies a lot more broadly than that, right? We've seen that with multiple commands, like shall not murder. Oh, is that it? Then you start peeling it back, you go to the broader lens, and it applies like, whoa, anger in the heart? Big deal, right? Adultery. Oh, okay, it makes sense. How about lust in the heart in our thought life, right? So it, it peels it back. It goes to that broader lens of application. So to here, it begins, though, with this focus, shall not bear false witness, that's where this command begins. And we wouldn't want a neighbor to bear false witness about us. Now, when we talk about false witness, we're talking about a courtroom setting, right? Right? Where someone has to get up and give testimony, right? You wouldn't want someone, if you were in a court case and you're, and, and you wouldn't want someone getting up on that bench and lying about you, right? Now, it's really struck me as I've been studying this, how 
just how significant this is. I mean, we're in a day where uh, I thank God for, and generally speaking, in, compared to the rest of the world, we live, we have an amazing law court system. You know, generally speaking, innocent until proven guilty. You know, um, I'd be thankful at least to have the hearing. Okay, we take it for granted in our in our day. But just thinking about in antiquity, so a long time ago, when they didn't have other forms of evidence, like video surveillance, right? Like DNA testing, right? You, you hear about these stories where it's like, they can get imprints of like tire marks and stuff like that. They can, there's so many different forms, like audio recordings. There's so many different forms of evidence that could be brought into the court of law, right? To, and once they vindicate someone's name, right? Or could be the opposite, incriminate somebody, right? But in antiquity, they didn't have all these different forms, right? They didn't have, you could say, all these different types of witnesses, they had really one type of witness. That was human beings speaking about other human beings. And it was so weighty that if you were brought into the corner of law and someone was charging something against you, that like to think that if someone gave a false witness and that witness is really the only thing that's going to be brought into the court for evidence, it's pretty serious, isn't it? Which is why even built into the law itself, there was you must establish your case on the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? Thank God, right? Uh, that it wouldn't just come down to one witness, the wisdom of God in that. There must be multiple witnesses and their stories must truly cohere. But someone still could bear false witness. And I've, I've been pondering this. It's been, it's a devastating thought. If you really think about it and just take the time to put yourself there. Let's say there's just something that, you could, something sick, something that you could not, you would not even imagine yourself doing. And all of a sudden, someone had a chip on their shoulder against you and made accusations. And you got arrested and you were being tried for this. And they're stacking, you know, evidence, they're, they're getting other witnesses to speak about you, these false things. Could you imagine? I mean, I was looking into this some this week and just looking at different cases you know, one woman was charged with something that was just something she could never dream of being charged with. She was truly innocent for it, but there was a prominent woman in her town who had a chip on her shoulder. And she used her influence and she even took the stand herself to bear false witness against this woman. And the charges were so intense that there was 22 counts that she would have to be innocent of for her not to spend at very least significant jail time, if not life in prison. And I actually watched a video of the verdict being read. And in her case, it was just a miracle. But not guilty, not guilty, not guilty for 22 things. She literally collapsed into her lawyer's arms as the verdict was being read because she was vindicated after two years of pain. And sorrow in her reputation just being demolished. She was a kindergarten teacher in the town, in a small town. So it's like the damage has been done. But she's thankful to not be spending the rest of her life on bars. And so she couldn't even be a kindergarten teacher anymore because of what it did to our reputation. So she went to law school. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty sweet. But it made me just kind of slow down and put myself there and go, Wow, how painful, how destructive that, how wicked it is. And like 
a lot of these commandments, they use the most extreme example in order to make the point, right? Because there's a lot of different ways to break the ninth commandment, but here is like the tip of the spear. Like this is like one of the most grotesque ways of breaking it is bearing false witness in the corn of law when someone else's um, reputation is at stake, where their basic liberties are at stake, and sometimes their very life is at stake. And this is why built into the law, there is very serious consequences for perjury, right? Lying under oath because it is a wicked thing to bear false witness. And it is, it's so serious. So again, just putting yourself in that, you would not want someone to bear false witness about you. Do not bear false witness about somebody else. And if we want to wonder just how serious the ninth commandment is, specifically in the most direct application of bearing false witness, Let me put it this way for all of us. The greatest injustice of human history came because of a breach of the ninth commandment. Think about everything that Jesus endured. Falsely accused. They bore false witness. That's why he died. Not the only reason, but on humanly speaking, you know, in a law court level, He died because there were false witnesses saying false things about him. So perhaps we have never given false witness, you know, in the strict sense of this narrow lens of being in a court of law, bearing a false witness in order to incriminate someone who did not do something else. But it's important for us to think about it through a broader lens, isn't it? To let it reach reach the heart. But I wanted to give true Wait to that first one, just to illustrate how significant it is to keep this commandment. And what's at stake if you put yourself in their shoes? So one, you wouldn't want your neighbor to give false testimony about you. Number two, you want, wouldn't want people to lie to you. Okay. So another, now we're moving out to a broader lens way of understanding the ninth commandment to not bear false testimony or false witness. Just lying, right? Lying. It's interesting. A lot of people will want to make justifications for what we'll call white lies, you know, things like that. But how offended we are when people lie to us. We are very offended when people lie to us, but we tend to justify our own skewing of the truth, right? Just how it works with almost every command, right? Like, they always break it worse than me. Really? Uh, But lies, and, and you just think about like, You don't want to live in a world like that, right? You don't want to live in a world where you can't trust other people. I mean, societies rise or fall on whether or not you can trust other people. And so when there's such polarization where there's just no trust, no trust in a community, no trust in a marriage, that's how things start falling apart. Lies are deadly. We do not want people to lie to us. Therefore, we shouldn't lie to other people and was thinking too just about what stands behind a lot of lies like why do we lie what would what would you know what would what motivation would be underneath a lie sometimes it's malice like hatred right you're lying because you want to get back at somebody or you want to cause harm like in the case of giving false witness you know it's just malice like that woman that sat on the stand bearing false witness. That 
Like it was malice that drove her there. She had this chip on her shoulder against somebody else. So lying can be driven by malice, a hatred of heart, but it can also be because of pride. Pride can lead us to lie because we are wanting to appear certain ways before people. And so we will manipulate the facts in order to make it fit our own narrative in order to appear a certain way or to have things play out a certain way or to cover up things about us that we don't want other people to know. Lying is very dangerous. And the scary thing about lying too is when one lie comes, they start to follow, right? Like I remember reading somewhere like, lying doesn't have legs, right? You have to give it legs, right? With more lies in order for it to, to keep walking. And so like, yeah, one lie leads to another. I have to cover that up. And uh, so, but the, just to bring it back to that, like, would you want someone to lie to you? A child, a spouse, a friend, you know, or just a car dealer. <laughs> like, would you want people to lie to you? No, then hold the same standard for yourself. You don't lie to others, but we can just see how significant it is just to recognize it, that I wouldn't want that to happen to me. I'm not going to do it to other people. Number three, you wouldn't want your neighbor to gossip about you. You knew this was coming. You wouldn't want your neighbor to gossip about you. Gossip happens when we pass on information about another person that is hearsay, right? But it's also gossip We might not think about this as much, but it's also gossip when we pass on information about others that, while true, it's not loving or honorable. It's not a loving, it's not coming from an honorable or reasonable uh, motive for sharing what we are sharing. And this is where it gets very deceitful when it comes to gossip and how we can so easily justify it, right? Because you can hear yourself probably saying, but it's true. Have you, have you heard something say that? Like, I'm not saying it's something that's not true, but God's saying, well, why are you saying it? Like that, that's the deeper question, right? And I'll admit there are some times it's kind of gray sometimes with gossip. Sometimes it's not, so let's not pretend. Sometimes it is a little gray and it's hard to discern, but when it comes to our motives and if our consciences are well calibrated, they'll tell us, <laughs> usually, they'll tell us, so we can say, but it's true. But think about this. Ask yourself some heart questions. And I just want to say these because they're just good for all of us because I think gossip when it comes to the sins of the tongue is one of the most insidious and one of the most, you know, one of the most sly ways that we sin against God and against our neighbor. So ask yourself the heart question. How would this person feel if they knew these things were being shared? Ask yourself the question, would you be embarrassed if they overheard you or found out what you were saying? You know that feeling like when you're saying something you shouldn't and all of a sudden like the possibility of someone just heard that, like the, you start to blush, you start to like kind of get hot, maybe start to almost hyperventilate. That's a sign that what you're saying should not be said. Um, a simplified way that some of us have talked about um, how gossip works, it's saying behind someone's back what you would not say to their face. 
It's a simple way to think about gossip. Saying behind their back what you would not say if they were in person with you. And another way to ask, another heart question to ask, you know, a thing to ask yourself in discernment is how necessary is it for me to pass on this information? So it's one thing to be like, well, it's true. It's like, but how necessary is it to talk about this? Why am I, here's another one. Why am I wanting to say these things? That's a huge one. If you really like, if we ask ourselves that question in a moment of temptation to gossip, why do I want? That word's really important. Why do I want? Why am I craving this? Why am I desiring to say this bit of information about this person right now? And that's where that malice, that pride can come in. Um, or let's put it in really morally clear terms. How would I feel if others were speaking about me in that way? All of a sudden it gets a lot more clear. You would probably err on the side of not saying it, right? If you could have a one-to-one correspondence about how people are talking about you, you wouldn't want to say it. God help us. See, when I think about gossip and how insidious this sin is and how it creeps up in the heart, it kind of scares me. This sin scares me. It scares me about my own heart and it scares me about your hearts. It scares me. I'm scared by what the heart craves sometimes. Proverbs 18.8 says, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. The words of, a whis- of whispers are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. A constantly helpful writer, Kevin DeYoung, he, I thought he captured this really well. This dynamic I've seen played out in life, uh, I would love to say in other people's lives, but I've seen this in my own. And I think it captures something really deep, and I want us to listen really close to this. He says this, quote, sadly, it's easy to make an, it's easy to make an intimate relational connection over a secret. It's easy to make an intimate relational connection with another person over a secret. People love secrets, especially juicy bad ones. There's no faster way to make a friend than to find a mutual enemy. End quote. It's true, isn't it? But take that further. Consider this with me. When you and a friend or you and a spouse or you and someone else gossip together about somebody else, you are bonding over sin. You are bonding over sin. You are finding pleasure in what would most certainly bring pain to somebody else. Do we see the satanic nature of something like gossip? What does Satan find pleasure in? He loves this kind of stuff. That's why I was kind of playfully, halfway jokingly saying five ways to make the devil happy. If you want to make the devil happy, bear false witness. You want to make the devil happy, um, you know, lie. And then cover it up some more. That would make him even more glad. And then if you want to make the devil happy, gossip. Be a whisperer. Be someone that hands out morsels for other people to eat. Make relational connections at the expense of other people. This is, this is deep. It's nasty. Not only is gossip wrong, it's wrong to listen to gossip. It's not only wrong to do it, It's wrong to listen to it. 
And I think about this. Have you ever had this? I've had this. Where you have someone coming to you and saying, so-and-so said this about you. In other words, so-and-so was gossiping about you. And they know because they were in that conversation. They leave that part out. They're not highlighting that part, right? But they're in that conversation. And maybe it's a friend of yours. Could be a spouse. And you realize in that moment that that conversation was happening about you. Have you ever had that moment where there's just like a lump in your throat? Like that hurt really, really bad. You know, the whole sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie, (laughs) right? They hurt intensely and they can do profound damage. There's power of life and death in the tongue, right? But you have that moment where they're telling you, well, so-and-so is saying this about you. And it's your friend recounting this, this conversation and the things that this person was saying. And every bit of you is going, why didn't you say anything? Were you just listening to this? Like you were just letting my name get trashed like that? You were just willing to just hear this stuff? And you're like somehow recounting this and I'm supposed to think you're a good friend right now. Just consider the nature of gossip. But not just speaking gossip, but hear, being willing to hear it. Why do you want to hear it? Well, we know because it's like a delicious morsel. <laughs> just goes down smooth, right? It's sick how our hearts crave these things. When we gossip, we're finding pleasure in hurting our neighbor's name and in damaging our neighbor's reputation. Flat out. That's what we're doing. It's very real, very real damage. There's a mom who wanted to teach her children about how to recognize how serious this kind of gossiping can be. So one of the children was gossiping about one of the neighbor kids with her other siblings. And, and so the mom recognizes it wisely for what it is. See, this is a moment to teach our, my kids something about how, not just that it's a bad thing, but the effects of it. And so she tells her children, children, I want you, can you do something for mommy? I want you to run all around the yard. Can you collect mommy a bouquet of dandelions? The ones that are going to seed, right? And so she has, a, and they collect an impressive bouquet, okay, of dandelions that have gone to seed. You know, like the fluffy ones on top with the little parachutes, right? So she's got a bouquet of these and they bring them. She's like, oh, well done, you guys. Thank you so much. And she takes this bouquet and she starts to spin in a circle in the yard, in the middle of the yard, and blow as hard as she can. You know what happens. These little fuzzy parachutes spread all over. That little breeze takes them all over the yard. And then she turns to them and says, okay, now collect all of them. Go collect all of them for mommy and bring them back to me. You see the youngest one that's a toddler run off and be like, okay. <laughs> the oldest one's being like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is impossible. And then the mommy, very wisely, she was looking forward to this punchline, right? That's exactly right. When you do damage to someone else's reputation, it's very hard to rebuild it. And that's what gossip does. That's what you are doing. So we don't want to gossip about other people. And that's the thing, isn't it? When those words go, it's hard to get it back. People can tear down, even in their own lives from their own sin, but other people by destroying other people's reputations. In an afternoon, what someone took to build a life up to that point in their life. It's very serious to steward other people's names. And so we wouldn't want people to gossip about us. It's very painful. Next, you wouldn't want 
someone, you wouldn't want your neighbor to slander you. Now, this is closely connected to gossip, right? But in a sense, it's worse, right? Because gossip can be, you know, peddling and hearsay and things like that. The thing about slander is that it's, there's a certain deliberateness to it. And they know, when someone's slandering, they know that what they're saying is false. In one sense, you could maybe say that, that slander is like false witness outside the courtroom. Maybe that's a way to think about it. False witness outside the courtroom. You know, it might not be in the courtroom setting, but you're knowingly bearing a false testimony about someone knowing that it could do very real damage. It's to speak, give a false report about someone in order to damage someone's reputation. Um, in a sense, you could think about slander. Think about these two phrases. This is tongue murder. <laughs> right? Just like, you know, being angry is heart murder. You can say, this is tongue murder. This is character assassination. Slander is character assassination. And one of the things that should just sober us about this is, as we're just describing all these sins of the tongue, like if you had to point at one person like and go like, oh, that person embodies all these things almost perfectly, what would you say? Who would you point at? Satan. And say, oh boy, this is not good company when we bear the sins of the, of the tongue on our hearts. More could be said here, but let's go on to the next one. You wouldn't want someone to flatter you. Now, in a sense, we're all vain, so we kind of like it, but let's be honest. When we know that they're just saying things that aren't true, <laughs> like, and someone just goes around just flattering with their words, this is something really important. It's actually sin to f- just flatter people. Something that you know it's not even true, but you're saying it's just weird because it's actually a positive thing that's being said, but you don't mean it. Your heart's totally detached from that. And it might not be reality. And so just flattering people, complimenting them endlessly. Like, now I want to be careful here because in a healthy church, we will be a people who affirm people. Like we will take out the highlighter all the time, even most of the time, wanting to highlight evidences of God's grace in people's lives, right? That's part of a healthy church and healthy relationships. When I talk about flattery, I'm talking about things that are not even true. But you're just, why are you wanting to just, you know, kind of stroke someone's ego in this way? What It comes down to the motive so often. And it's kind of, it's interesting. A flatterer, someone who tends to flatter, well, often it's a form of manipulation and control. It looks so nice on the surface, actually a form of manipulation and control and wanting to, uh, you know, kind of angle themselves in the relationship or be seen a certain way or to get a certain amount of, I don't know, leverage in, in a relationship or at least maybe get their back scratched <laughs> um, after they've said something so kind about someone else. Last one I want to highlight here in this first part is you wouldn't want someone to twist your words. You wouldn't want someone to twist your words. Isn't that frustrating? When you say something, you feel like you've actually been pretty clear and you were pretty honest in your speech, you know, and, and, um, and the way you communicated something, but someone else is recounting it and they twist it. They put the emphasis somewhere totally else to make you look bad. Or maybe even more often, not so much to make you look bad as much as to make them look good. It's like retelling something in order to make yourself the hero of the story. 
There's so many subtle ways this can happen, but it can happen in, in ways too where it's, you know, maybe someone's idea was shared. You don't love it, but you know, you have to, you have to pass on that idea. But the way that you share it basically makes the thing dead on arrival, right? It's not going to get any, it's not going to get any traction because you've already killed it, <laughs> right? Before, because you didn't represent it fairly. This, there's a, there's a lot to this. We like our ideas to be given fair hearing. We like, our thoughts to be treated with clarity. If someone's, you know, reading a letter that you wrote, you want them to try to understand your intent of it and give a charitable reading of what you're saying and not just twist it to mean anything that they want. And I think this actually has a strong application to even how we treat God's word. You know, we can treat God's word like, oh, just pick and choose. You know, this is, this is what I want God to be like. Sorry, if you do that, you're not representing God well. You have to let the whole of his word speak about who he is. We want to represent God. We don't want to twist his words um, for our own ends and purposes. We want to speak them truthfully, just like we would want others uh, to speak our words truthfully and to represent us in our thoughts well. And this, even when we disagree with someone on something, maybe, maybe even truth, like our theology, we disagree with someone, um, we want to be able to fairly represent their view, even if we disagree with it. We don't want to just set up a straw man, knock it down, and be like, oh, see how false that is. We want to actually give true justice to it. Why does it matter to them? Be able to speak about that. Like, for example, and I'm not trying to pick any punches here, but I was thinking about this on the drive here this morning. Like, I, I have strong concerns about our Catholic neighbors and how they, what they believe about Mary, for example. But if I was going to be charitable and I think fulfill the heartbeat of this commandment, I would want to understand where they're coming from. Even though I disagree with it, even though I don't think it's biblical, I want to be able to really understand it and not speak about it if I don't understand it. Even if other people would seem to pressure me to think, speak about it before I even understand well, Make sure I understand it and that I can charitably do it where uh, a, a Catholic that has a lot of conviction would look at what I'm saying and going, yeah, that's what we believe. So that they would actually feel like at least respected in that moment and we can have an honest disagreement on something. But we don't want to twist other people's words or beliefs. We want to fairly represent them to others. Now as we go through on these lists and we say all these things that we wouldn't, how we wouldn't want to be treated, it's helpful for us to realize that these are all the ways that Jesus Christ has been treated. And in a sense, like we to one degree or another, have done these things. And I hope even here, um, as, we, as we've heard these things unpacked, that we would all go, I've acted wickedly with my speech. Like, I am a sinner. And of course, some of the, some have shared from this sermon series that it's like, we're going to do a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And it's like, oh, that'll be some nice review. And then we'll go through it and it's like, oh boy. Like, this is a lot deeper toward my heart than I thought, you know? But we have to get there. We have to realize, like, no, we needed him to go to that cross. But we need to realize that when he did go to that cross, he he got there through very human means in a lot of ways. We go right down the list, or you could say right up the list from where we were. How many people twisted Jesus' words? Who? How many people tried to flatter him? oh, you're a good teacher while they're trying to trip him and get him into some kind of trap, right? How many people 
slandered him, knowingly said false things about him. Right? How many people gossiped about him? How many people lied to him? Not the least of which would be Judas dipping the bread with him on the night in which he died, betraying him with the kiss. But then think about how it all culminated in the courtroom. People bearing false witness against Jesus Christ. He got there because of a breach on human terms, uh, because of a breach of the ninth commandment. This commandment is so serious. And to think, do you value your reputation? Honest question. Do you, do you value your reputation? I value my reputation a ton. You, know, you, you try to have an upright, you know, life. You know, a strong reputation, but let's all be honest. All of us are imperfect, right? All of us have sinned. Jesus Christ never sinned. He had a spotless reputation. And it's not because people didn't know him well enough. Like, it was all out there. He was perfect in every way. It didn't matter. People that were malicious in their intent, prideful, put him to the cross. The same kind of hearts that we have. (laughs) Put Jesus on a cross. So this name that should have been treated with the utmost respect was drugged through the mud. I mean, he suffered and died there, humanly speaking, like he looked like a criminal. Literally hanging between two criminals. Like he was no different than them and deserved no different plight, right? I I mentioned the court cases where someone was genuinely innocent, right? But the reality is, is even if they're innocent in that instance, they're not perfectly innocent in their life. Jesus was. He was perfectly innocent in his life. And he was put there on the cross. His name drugged through the mud and and it looked there like the greatest reputation, like a lamp, a bright shining lamp was just put out. Then on Saturday, it seemed like it just emphasized the point, like it's done. It's just a flash in the plan. This reputation's done. No matter what we knew of him, this is what seems to stand. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The Father has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him what? The name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that all the universe would know this is the one with the spotless reputation. No matter what people did to him here, it didn't change anything. And that's one of the things that stuns me about Jesus Christ. People could throw everything at him and nothing could stick. The resurrection showed that nothing of the things, the filthy things that people said about Jesus Christ could stick. His character was perfect. And ironically, the lies hurled at him ultimately served to highlight the truth about his identity. The perfection of his character, the integrity of his life, the durability of his devotion. In order to put Jesus to death, people had to act lawlessly. But what the enemy meant for evil the Father planned for good. Jesus' integrity of life, his good name, the fact that he never gave one reason for his name to lose any credibility, our salvation hangs on his name. Our salvation hangs 
on the perfection of his character. Our salvation hangs on the fact that Jesus is the ultimate above reproach human being. People, and even nowadays, can throw what they want in, but nothing sticks. And the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is the innocence of Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to say, maybe some of you are here and you're realizing like, wow, even the ninth commandment convicts me. Even the ninth commandment is enough to send me like we began in Psalm 1, right? Where I wouldn't be able to stand in the judgment or in the congregation of the righteous. I know enough to say, I know that there are people probably within the hearing of my voice that are living in lies. And if any of us has lived in a lie for a little while, it's a miserable place to be. And I want to just, I want this word to be a liberating word in Jesus Christ. This is a word calling you out of darkness. This is a word calling you out of a life of lies. You don't have to stack lie upon lie to cover up who you really are. Jesus Christ sees who you already are and he died so that you didn't have to stay in the darkness. So break your ties with lies and turn to Jesus Christ the one who has a perfect reputation, and he'll take that name that you have defiled. There may be the name that you're trying to protect, but the reality is, is you've already defiled it. He'll take that name. He will cleanse it. And he will rebuild it so that your name is bound up with his name. It will be a beautiful thing. It will be a beautiful thing. And it's a wonderful way to live, to live in the light. A good conscience is a man's best friend. And I want everyone here to live with a good conscience. To think we could be so thoroughly known, but yet so thoroughly received. It just comes through Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. And so let's rejoice in the one who is without blemish in his character. The one who has a perfect name and so that he can stand as our advocate. Because ultimately, we're not going to stand because we had a good name. We're going to stand because he has a good name. So let us draw near to God and let us draw near through his son, Jesus Christ, because he is our only hope. Brothers and sisters, if you have fallen short, if you're being convicted, maybe you're in the habit of gossip and you're just having to be really honest with yourself in your heart right now. Maybe you're a generally good person and godly Christian, but this is an area of your life where you're being exposed. Let God lead you to a place where you humbly recognize it for what it is. But please call it what it is. It is sin. It's satanic to gossip, to slander, to misrepresent others. And repent of it. And come to Christ and recognize the freedom that you can live with and ask him continually to help you use your tongue in a way that doesn't look like the slanderer Satan, but instead looks like the Son of God in the way that he speaks. I close with a few ways that we would want our neighbor to treat our name, okay? Specific ways we'd want our neighbor to treat our name. Number one, you would want, listen to this, you would want your neighbor to humbly consider his or her own own sin and weaknesses instead of being preoccupied with yours. Isn't it true? Like someone else seems so preoccupied with our, like my struggle, it's like, don't you have something else to do? The answer is yes, All of us have something else to be focused on. And that is, yes, we have our own sin to deal with and we have our own weaknesses that need shoring up, right? And so um, 
we would want that. We would want our neighbor to live humbly, right? And so we want to live humbly and recognize, yes, okay, I'm going to deal with my own stuff. I'm not going to spend all my time thinking about other people's stuff. Maybe we're way out of proportion on this and we need to be corrected. And if you really think about it, like even if someone is someone's life is worthy of criticism, should we be seeking to kind of bury them in it? Should we be seeking to kind of hogpile, you know, add jump on top of that already? I mean, I think about this. Like, Jesus, if there's anybody that could nitpick anybody else, Jesus could nitpick all of us to death. Like, he could. And what really struck me on this point is that if Jesus could pick one person to really nitpick, he'd probably pick Judas, right? Even in the Last Supper, when Judah, he knew Judas was going to be the one to betray him, you even see the subtle ways that Jesus is not trying to just call Judas out in that moment, not trying to hogpile on Judas. Like, the facts are in. We know how it all shook out. But the reality is, is Jesus had many opportunities to go after people. And he didn't make his life about that. Just something for us to think about. If we're making our lives about that, even more than we realize, we're in the opposite direction of our Savior. So let's consider our own and let's let the Lord deal with us on it so that we're walking humbly, not nitpicking others. Next, you would want your neighbor to give a charitable judgment and assume the best. This is something that's easier said than done, right? We want other people to give us the benefit of the doubt and impute good motives on us, right? But we tend to, in our flesh, not give other people the benefit of the doubt and think the worst about their motives. And so this is an encouragement for all of us to, like, in Christ to let's slow down and not be quick to make rash judgments about people. Or even things that we hear about, like in the media and stuff like that, that we want to kind of pontificate about. We want to, we want to be able to give our opinion and people want our opinion. Like, you don't have to speak to everything in the world. Okay? God didn't put the microphone in your mouth and say, tell everybody everything. Right? He's telling you to bear witness to Him. He's telling you to represent Him well. And part of how we do that in the world is just being slow to anger, slow to speak, right? Slow to make rash judgments. And that means we have to be really patient with people, even more patient with people than others around us might want us to be. It might be unpopular. Maybe there's something that comes up in the news and everybody wants you just to fire off about it, you know, especially on like social media or something. Be a person that slows down. Like, I don't know enough about it to speak about it. And once I do, I'm not sure I want to. Eh? <laughs> okay, like we don't have to speak to everything. Slow down and have sound judgment on things and let God work on our own hearts so we're humble. So then we actually do speak to something, it matters. It carries weight and we're gracious where we can be gracious and we're clear where we can be clear. And even our critiques are redemptive. So more could be said there, but I want to bring things to a close very soon. Um, at the end of the day, think about think about this. You want other people to steward your name well. Then we have a stewardship of each other's names and each other's reputations. And the fact is, is that um, even when, even when we fall short, even when we maybe there is something in our lives that could be criticized, we want people to deal gently with us, right? 
So let's deal gently with others. When other people, like, there is something in their character. There's a genuine blemish. That doesn't mean you don't say anything, but it means you go about that in the most redemptive way possible. And it's interesting. This is how Jesus taught us to live, right? Even in the most extreme cases where people are living in sin and they're not repentant, he tells us to go, does he say, first bring it to the whole church? What does he tell us to do? Go into the vigil, right? Start one-on-one. Why? Protect his name. You're helping protect your neighbor's good name, right? So it starts one-on-one, and then if it has to, because there's continual unrepentance, then you would bring in just a few others, trusted people, to be able, but you're going directly to them to help them, right? It's all redemptive, right? In other words, Jesus is teaching us only bring in as many people that need to be brought in, okay? The last one I want to bring out, kind of the flip side with gossip. You would want your neighbor to protect your name in the face of gossip. I feel like so much of this commandment hits the ground on on gossip, so I want to spend my final thought on this. When someone, I mentioned earlier, so it's obvious that we shouldn't gossip about others, right? But what about when others are gossiping to us about somebody? This is what I want to address. Do we stand by rumors and falsehoods? Like that example I gave you earlier, you got that lump in your throat. Well, did you say anything? What did you do about it? You just let my reputation be trashed? None of us would want that. So what do you do in a situation like that? And I had kind of a fun conversation with Karin on this point. It's like our different personalities coming out. And uh, I just think about it. Some of you live in workplaces where just gossip is just rampant, right? I won't do a show of hands right now, but I bet strong many of you would raise your hand and be like, oh, yeah. Right? This is the world we live in. This is how worldly people conduct themselves. Right? They love to get morsels from each other. They love to build intimacy on lies. But we're not children of the darkness. We're children of the light. So instead of partaking of it, we should expose it. Right? So how do you do that? So this is where it got playful with Karn and I talking about it. I'm like, well, okay. So I think when someone comes and they're gossiping to you, you should be like, <clears throat> okay, give me a sec. <laughs> you should say something like, um, I had I had a few different ways of phrasing this, but um, you want to be like, okay, uh, listen, I know what you're trying to do right now, and I'm not going to have this conversation with you, um, and I want you to know this. Um, I'm not going to listen to you talk about this person in this way, but I tell you this. I guarantee you when someone else comes to me talking to you, talking about you, I'm not going to stand for it either. Could you imagine the level that that level of integrity that would just kind of ripple. They might not be coming to you for conversations that much anymore, but I think it would make the point. And that was Karen's point to me. She's like, you know, I think you're a little more direct than some people. Like, maybe. Okay, point taken. So what's another possibility of coming at this if you don't have quite as maybe strong a personality? And I just think it's so beautiful because either way you want, you have to be bold in your own way. But I think just in a simple way of being able to say, I don't think it's honoring to have this conversation right now. So I'm not, I'm not going to partake in this conversation. It can be an uncomfortable thing, but what do you want? What do you want? Do you want to build an intimate friendship over a lie? Or do you want to help bring people into the truth? Others, don't cultivate these things. Don't think you're doing, you're not loving a person that's gossiping. And this is where I want to challenge us. I think especially in marriage, we can feel a certain comfort level with our spouses, right? Where, if we had to say, where do we gossip the most? It's probably in the home. But what are we teaching our children about the stewardship of reputations? Right? What are we, what are we, what are we even modeling for our spouse? 
And I get that. There's a certain comfort level and there's hard things that happen in life. And I, and I think this is where I've struggled the most at certain times. Um, but what I want to say is this. What I want to say to my wife is, don't let me get away with it. I think our spouses should be able to look at each other and be like, don't let me do it. Don't, I want to be godly in public and I want to be godly in private. I am who I am in the home, flat out. And so I don't let it, don't let each other get away with just sinning like that. But be gracious about it. Whether you have a stronger personality or one that's a little, you know, not like mine, which is very good, by the way. I think that's very healthy. Um, I would just say, like, let's be a people that cultivate that kind of integrity in our lives. And I hope that will challenge us. Now, I know sometimes it's gray, right? But that's where we can help each other in true gospel friendships and partnerships and even marriages is to test the motive of our hearts. Spend more time praying about a person you're concerned about than talking about them. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we draw near to you and simply put, Lord, we confess, Lord, we confess the ways that we have acted more like our adversary, the devil, than like the Son of God with our use of speech. Lord, we see from your word that there is power of life and death in the tongue. God, we're reminded of it often. We thank you for your word and how it convicts us, but we thank you for how it doesn't leave us there at conviction, but it drives us to your son, Jesus Christ, the one with a perfect spotless reputation. Jesus, we glory in you. We glory in our redeemer. We praise you, Lord, for your name, and we praise you that you are resurrecting our names. And we thank you that our names are bound up in your good name, that in you we have a good name. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would cultivate a good name and that we would have a zeal to walk with integrity so that we would have an honorable name. But Lord, that we'd have an equal zeal to see to it that we are upholding the name of others. God, grant us this integrity of life so that we would be bright and vibrant witnesses, salt and light in this world, so that our proclamation of the gospel would carry a certain weight and power because our lives bear witness to the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And it's his name we pray. Amen.